The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Study in our uh, series of studies we do here. We haven't been together for a couple months. It's great to be uh, back together during a CE hour. Now, uh, since we were last together, there's been all sorts of things in the news, and a lot of discussion has been about issues of morality. And uh, whether it be marriage or all different uh, of sexuality, it's sort of been the hot topics in our culture in North America the last few months, the last couple of years, really. And we see battle lines draw, drawn in our society on these issues of morality, of right and wrong. Now, here's the question. When there are disagreements over matters of right and wrong, good and evil, allowable and disallowable, how do you decide? Who decides what's right and what's wrong? Who decides what's acceptable and what's not acceptable? Now you think, well, we live in a democracy, so shouldn't it just be like a poll? You take a poll and whatever the most people believe, then that's what's acceptable. Really. So if we were to take a poll that's, that tomorrow we found that 51% of Canadians believe that torturing children for sport is fine, then suddenly torturing children for sport is fine. Would you really think that's true? I don't think so. So it's not as simple as a, a plebiscite. It's not as simple as just you know, counting heads and making decisions on right and wrong as far as that goes. Who has the final authority in life? Now, when we ask that question, who has the final authority in life, what do we mean by authority? What, what do we mean when we're talking authority? As your outline says, here's our definition of authority. It's the right to demand obedience. Authority means the right to demand obedience. You must do this. Why? Because I have the authority to require you to do this. Authority is the right to demand obedience. Now, the Christian worldview is really quite simple. Who has the, the final authority in life? Well, as your outline said, God himself. That's your next blank. God himself. In the Christian worldview, God himself has the final authority in life. Well, for example, l let's stick with morality for a second. And this will feel like a bit of a detour initially, but it's not. Trust me, we're going to bring this back in, and it'll all mean something in a moment. Where does morality come from? We started by talking about morality. Let's, let's flow with that for a moment. Where does morality come from? How do we get, where do we get our sense of good and evil, right and wrong? That's actually one of the, uh, in, in, a in a debate format, that's a, a strong argument that I use for the existence of God. And that is that um, if God, that's the short form, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. The key word there is objective, meaning right and wrong, no matter what cultures, no matter what vote, no matter what anyone else thinks or feels, objective moral duties do not exist. Two. Objective moral values and duties exist. You actually get very little argument with this. 
on say a college or university campus, people will not argue with that. Uh, particularly in a world where we talk, uh, well, you know, about tolerance or intolerance, or they would say, no, it's, it's wrong to be intolerant. Oh, is it objectively wrong to be intolerant? Is it always wrong to be intolerant? Oh, so, so people don't argue this. They'll, they'll acknowledge that, yeah, there are things that are just wrong. There is good and there is evil. There are things that are just evil. So then the third point is, therefore, God exists. See, and what you're pointing out here is that if there is no God, objective moral values don't exist. If there is no God, then you and I are just cosmic slime. We're, we're, ob we're ultimately answerable to no one. We just happened. We're just here. We're like a sneeze. We just happen to happen. And we have no, there's no God to whom we're answerable. And so there's really no ultimate right or wrong. But we do know there are things that are ultimately objectively right or wrong. Therefore, they can only be grounded in God himself. That is a great one of many arguments for the existence of God. Now, some who deny God's existence have tried to claim that morality is something that simply exists. It's just out there. It, it just exists. Okay? Now, there's a couple of problems with that view whenever it's brought up to me. I'll say, well, if that were true, if morality just exists, there's no God, morality just exists on its own, then how did we come to know it? If it's just out there, what a coincidence that this thing called morality is out there in the universe, and we just happen to all agree with it and know it. How did that just happen? It'd be like... An, Asteroid? I mean, is it some physical thing? What is morality? Is it some physical thing? No, it just is. Okay, well then if it just is, how did it come to be that every human being acknowledges it at some level? But even more than that, if morality just exists, why does it even matter? Who says we have to obey it? There is no God to enforce it. So why, if it even if it exists, why should I obey it? It'd be like, the astronauts are landing on the moon and seeing a sign that says, no parking. <laughs> so what? Who's going to enforce it? Who's going to give you a ticket? It's meaningless. It's pointless. So if morality just exists, but there's no God behind it, how did we come to know it? And secondly, why do I have to obey it? I don't. It's pointless. It's meaningless. If it just exists on its own, it has no authority. Who's going to enforce it? So the biblical worldview is that all morality is rooted in God himself. The biblical worldview is that God is the ultimate authority behind what's good and evil, behind what's right and wrong. Now, the real thinking folks out there say, okay, Darren, if that's true, then that means that morality is something that God just made up. And that means he could change it if he wanted to. And so, for example, you know, the, the NHL this year, the National Hockey League, is changing the rules for overtime this year. It used to be when the game was over and there was a tie, they would go into a five-minute overtime, and instead of having five players on each team, they went down to four players on each team. This year, they made it down to three players on the ice at the time to, to try to make it more exciting and make the games end quicker. They just suddenly, all of a sudden, last year the rule was four players on the ice. This year, they just randomly said, no, now it's three. That's the new rule. 
And they say, well, morality would be like that then. God just made up what's right and what's wrong. And God, if he wanted to, tomorrow could say, adultery is thumbs up. Murder, good to go. He could, he's God. He has the authority, Darren, you're saying. So God could just suddenly change adultery and murder and torturing innocent babies. That's all good. And it would be good. That's a misunderstanding of the foundation of morality. Good is not good because God says it's good. Good is good because it measures up to who God is. See the difference? Good isn't good because God says this is good. Good is good because this measures up to who God is. God's nature is the ultimate standard of good and evil, right and wrong. Think of it in, in these terms. If you were to go to uh, France, I think it's in Paris, um, there's an official meter stick. Um, was it made out of platinum or something like that? Some incredible metal. Anyway, and this is roughly a meter, we'll say. And there's the official meter stick. Now, actually, I think they do it uh, uh, electronically or whatever. But there's an official meter stick. And that is a meter. And all meter sticks that you have, like a yardstick, all meter sticks that you have are only meter sticks as far as they measure up against this. This is a meter. That's the ultimate standard. Think of this. If there were Darren Latham impersonators out there, they would only be as good as I am. I am the ultimate Darren Latham impersonator. I am Darren. You can't be a better Darren Latham impersonator than me. I am Darren. You can't be closer to a meter stick than this is. This is a meter. You can't be more good than God. God is good. And everything measures a meter measures up against this. Darren Latham impersonators measure up against Darren Latham. Goodness is only good if it measures up to God. So good isn't what God says. Good is who and what God is. See the difference? Huge difference. Okay? God's nature, God's nature is the foundation of good, and so his commands flow out of his nature. Be holy. Why? Because I said so. No. Be holy because I am holy. See the difference? Be holy because I said so. No. Be holy because I am holy. And I designed you to be what I am as far as the goodness and holiness goes. So, where does God get his authority? This is where we're bringing it all around now in your outline. Where does God get his authority? God doesn't get or derive his authority from anyone or anything. God doesn't get or derive his authority from anyone or anything. As the creator of the universe, he is the ultimate source and foundation of all authority. As the creator of the universe, he is the ultimate source and foundation of all authority. He doesn't get his authority from anyone or anything. He is the ultimate authority. Okay. So, we've asked some questions here. We said, who has the final authority in life? Well, authority, we mean the, the right to demand obedience. Who has his final authority? God himself does. Where does he get his authority? He doesn't get his authority from anyone or anything. He is the authority. As the creator of the whole universe, he is the ultimate source and foundation of all authority. Okay. So God ultimately decides what's right and wrong, good and evil, acceptable and not acceptable. Yes. Which leads to another question, which is on your outline. 
So how can we know God's mind on a matter? If he's the ultimate authority, how can we know what he's thinking, what he's desiring, what he would do in any situation? How can we know God's opinion, God's view on anything? That leads to the next blank in your outline. Revelation. Revelation. Now, when we say Revelation, I'm not talking about the book of Revelation. I'm not talking about the last book in the New Testament. Here's a definition I've given you on your outline. Um, in the narrowest sense, the word means unveiling. Apocalypsis is, is the word in the New Testament. It means the unveiling of something hidden so that it can be seen and known for what it is. Literally, a discovering. When you discover, you know, you look at the word discover, it's discover. You take the cover off of something. You discover it. Okay? And uh, that's what literally what uh, revelation means. It means to discover, to take the cover off something and to see it for what it is. In a broader sense, it refers to all forms of communication from God. So revelation refers to, in a broad sense, every and all form of communication from God. Now, there are essentially two types of revelation. There's general revelation and there's special revelation. Uh, today, we're going to look at general revelation. That's your next blank. Today, we're going to look at general revelation. Now, why is it called general revelation? It's general in its scope, as your outline says, meaning it's generally available to all of humanity. Okay? So it's general in its scope. It's called general revelation because it's generally available to everyone. Everyone in the world, everyone has access to this revelation, to this communication from God. Not just special people, not just you know, spiritual people, uh, people in tune, not just people who've gone to university or seminary or gone to some guru. No, it's generally available to everybody in the world. So in its scope, it's generally available. And B, in its content... Uh, it provides general knowledge as opposed to specific knowledge. So it provides general knowledge about God. So it's general in its scope. It's generally available to everybody. And it's general in its content. It, it provides general knowledge versus specific knowledge. Uh, what do we mean by that? Well, for example, you... you well, I won't get to that yet because I'll, uh, I'll, I'll hold on to that. Let's talk about two sources of general revelation on your outline. And we're moving along quickly here. We're going to have like a long time for questions. This is going to be good. Um, there are generally two sources of general revelation. One, nature. Nature is one of the sources of general revelation. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. The Apostle Paul wrote this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. Now, you can't suppress something that you don't have. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. How? Because God has made it plain to them. How? Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, such as his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Do you hear what Paul's saying there? He's speaking about general revelation. I'm going to read it again. 
by the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. They know it, but they're suppressing it. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So by looking at nature, at creation, you can generally know that God is intelligent and God's powerful. But you wouldn't be able to know that God is a trinity. See, there's general information, there's specific information. Looking at a sunrise or a sunset, I can know, looking at creation and, and the vastness of it, I can know that there's a powerful, intelligent mind behind all this, but I wouldn't know that it's a trinity. Uh, or that God took on the form of humanity in the person of Jesus. I wouldn't know that by looking at the, the power of, of nature and creation. Nature provides us with a general revelation of God. The revelation of God from nature is general in its scope and its content. Secondly, another source of general revelation is conscience. Conscience. The word conscience literally means, when you break it down, con-science. Science means to know or knowledge, and con means beside yourself. So it's a knowledge beside yourself is what a conscience is. It's that voice in you we talk about. It's that voice inside of you. It's your conscience. It's knowledge beside yourself. You're, you're, it's self-reflecting knowledge, okay? And this conscience has been uh, salted and uh, fed by God himself. Listen to what Romans 2, 14 to 16 says. Paul says, when Gentiles, again, he's, there's the Jews who have, have been given the law, the commandments and so on, and then there's Gentiles, non-Jews, who were never given the law. When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature, meaning on their own, they do by nature things required by the law, how do they do that? How do they know that murdering is wrong? How did they know that you shouldn't just sleep with anybody? How did they know that? They were, Moses didn't come down from any mountain for them. How did they know this? When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So sometimes the, their own consciences say, you're wrong. And sometimes their conscience says, no, you have every right to do this. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So scripture teaches that another form of general revelation about God is the conscience. Because humanity, we know, even though we've never been given the strict law, there's something within us that knows right and wrong, and that right and wrong exist. We have a generally shared sense of oughtness. You ought to do this. You did this, but you should do this. I don't know of any culture in the world that doesn't have the word should, or the concept of should. Think of the word should. Should means there is a moral obligation. You did this, that was wrong. You should have done this. It is right to do this, but you did X, and you should have done Y. I don't know of any culture that says anything goes. Absolutely anything goes. No. They'll say, they may disagree on what goes, but they won't say anything goes. They'll say, you should do this. 
and you should not do this. That was what Paul's talking about. The sense of obligation of right and wrong. Now, this sense can be tampered with. It can be diluted. It can even be resisted and rejected. But it still remains at the core and surface in all kinds of subtle ways. When I first became a Christ follower at age 19, the very first book I really read that stirred me and helped me was the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Mere not meaning, uh, mere meaning like basic, essential Christianity by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read it, you should. Every young person should read that. I think it's the first book every young Christian should read, actually, um, if you're in high school or college or something. And uh, he begins with um, the, what he called the law of nature. I remember when I first read this, I read this and I thought, this makes absolute sense. This is how the book begins. I'm reading from the very first paragraphs of Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says this, Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things they say. They say things like this. How would you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. Sounds like you folks when we're beginning a Bible study here every Sunday morning. <laughs> people say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated. And children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks, Lewis says, is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior doesn't happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom says, forget about your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out what he has done and been doing doesn't really go against the standard, or that if it does, there's some special excuse. He pretends there's some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first shouldn't keep it, or that things were quite different when he was given that bit of orange, or that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior of mor or morality or whatever you want to call it about which they really agreed. And they have. If they had not, they might, of course, fight like animals, but they couldn't quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you had some sort of agreement as to what was right and wrong. Just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. C.S. Lewis is talking about what we've just been talking about. There is this understood sense of right and wrong that all of humanity shares. That's part of general revelation. It's a conscience. Now, yeah, different societies will, may disagree on how many wives or husbands you can have, but they will agree that you just can't have anybody's wife or anybody's husband. They may disagree on, on when it's right to, to, to kill or take a life, but they won't agree that anybody can take a life at any time for any reason. Okay, so yes, they, this sense of oughtness, of conscience, can be diluted, polluted, resisted, even rejected. But even in the rejecting, there's reasons why it's okay to reject it. 
That's part of general revelation. God communicating his existence and himself to humanity. Okay, let's do a quick review. We began by asking a simple question. Who has the final authority in life? What do we mean by final authority? We mean the right to demand obedience. We answered that God himself has that kind of authority. Why is that? Because God is the creator of everything. Because God is the ultimate source and foundation of all life. That makes God the ultimate source and foundation of all authority as well. Okay, so God has the final authority in life. That leads to the next question. How can we know what God demands or desires in any given situation? How can we know as humans, how can we know God's mind on matters? The answer is revelation. And by revelation, we don't mean the last book of the Bible. By revelation, we mean God uncovering, God unveiling, God communicating his thoughts to us. And the only way we can know God's mind is by God revealing himself to us. How does God do that? How does God reveal himself to us? Well, we've learned that there are two main types of revelation, general revelation and special revelation. And today we're looking at general revelation. We've learned that it's called general revelation because it's generally available to all humanity and because it provides us with general as opposed to specific uh, information about God. Furthermore, we've learned that there are two basic sources so far of general revelation, nature and conscience. And that leads us to one final question for today before we open it up to questions. What function does general revelation serve? Well, there are basically three main functions of general revelation. First, it reveals God's glory. It reveals God's glory. Listen to what Psalm 19, 1-4 says. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's creation, declares the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. They're always talking, in other words. Night after night they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So this general revelation, it reveals God's glory, God's perfection, God's power. Okay? Secondly, it renders us accountable before God. Renders us or makes us. Renders us accountable before God. Scripture says in Romans 1, 19 to 20 and 2, 15 to 16. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So they have no excuses before God. You and I are accountable before God. We know that what we're doing is wrong. We can't plead ignorance. I've got to plead ignorance on this one, God. I had no idea it was wrong to take that knife and stab that guy in the head. I, I had no idea. No. We know what's right and what's wrong. We have a general sense, general knowledge, through nature and through conscience. And then thirdly, it stabilizes society. 
and we've sort of talked about that already. It stabilizes human society by providing a foundation for a shared sense of morality. You think about it, we, we, we argue about the, the, the we, we nibble around the edges, and even within North American society, it's been good for a couple hundred years, only in the last couple decades have we started to see an erosion uh, as, as men and women are suppressing the truth, as the Apostle Paul said. But it provides a general foundation of oughtness, of right and wrong. You know, the Magna Carta and all that. Basic documents that we can all agree on and say, yes, this is what ought to happen. Here's how a just society, and here's what it looks like. And there's very little disagreement about what a just society looks like. Where do we get this agreement? General knowledge, the conscience that God gave us. Now, here's one last question before we open it up to questions. It's on your outline. Is general revelation, meaning communication from God, from nature and conscience, is that alone enough for salvation? Can a person come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ simply by looking at a sunset? Well, that is not, as your outline says, that's not what general revelation was designed to do. So the answer is essentially no. That's not what general revelation was designed to do. General revelation is sufficient to inform us and guide us, but it alone cannot save us. So general revelation, uh, it's sufficient to inform us and to guide us, but it alone cannot save us. Next time we get together, we're going to look at the concept of special revelation, and that is where things will start to get really interesting. But let's open it up for questions about what we've talked about today. We've unpacked a lot in, these, uh, in this half hour, 40 minutes. Yes. And your name is? You can't remember? Okay, this, this is a tough one. Uh-oh. You say that every time. In the moral realm? I can give you an example, sure. In the moral realm. Pardon me? In the moral realm, what we're talking about. Give me an example in the moral realm where one gospel contradicts another one. Okay, I just can't think of a specific thing there. But what I'm going to say is that... Because, just to be clear, so we're not talking about how many people were at the tomb. Uh, we're talking about the moral realm is what you're arguing here. So I don't know of any example, but I'm open to any. Rebellion. 
Yeah, it was never intended for man, uh, but, uh, but man, by his choice, chose to go there. Just like I could say to my children, you know, Pat, um, I could say, Patrick, th that, um, um, I intended, let's make up a scenario, Pat, your mother and I have divided up our will into four for all four of our children, uh, but because you have so rebelled and you have turned your back on everything and you are living in a cult and he's not, <laughs> but, and, and you're doing all these things, listen, I have to remove you from our will because of what you're doing and, and the choices you have made. It was never our intention. Our design and intention was for you to flourish and receive the blessings of our, of our work, of all of our lives. But now, because of your choices, you're experiencing something we never intended you to experience. It wasn't our design. It's not our wish. It's not our desire. We love you, but we cannot uh, endorse what you're doing. And this is the final consequences of your deeds. OK? Other questions about what we talked about today? Come on, we've talked about a lot here. There's got to be questions. Yeah, but pushback. No, I'm that good of a teacher. <laughs> oh, you're that tired. Okay, back corner and then here. All right, just so we got something done. You're pitying me now. We all have, pardon the. The conscience thing. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, I got one. It bugs me all the time. Yeah. You know, but, um, Yeah, that's a very good question. The question is, how, how do we know it's our conscience acting or it's oppression, some type of other source? For example, if you're sitting here, let's say Walter's here at the table, never sit in the table in front of me. You get used all the time as illustrations. Let's say Walter was raised strict Amish. And Amish, you know, where I was raised, we had lots of Amish folks around. And I went to school with people who did not have vehicles, they just wore black, uh, they did not have electricity, they just didn't believe in those things. Believing meaning they knew they existed, but they just felt that it would be wrong and evil and it's worldly to indulge in those things. Okay, let's say an Amish person um, um, steps out of that community and they say, no, I no longer adhere to those values or to those beliefs. I no longer think it's evil to wear red, you know. Um, and so, but that person would still in their conscience have guilt. Every time they put a red shirt on, they'd have this twinge of, am I doing something wrong? So is that God saying, ooh, wearing red? You, ma'am, are evil today. <laughs> you know, no, no, not at all. So, but that is where our, the conscience has been, um, like I said, it's been, it can be polluted. It can be corrupted. And that's where we need to uh, use, we come back to the authority of Scripture, which is what we're going to get to under special revelation. That's why we're building a foundation here. Um, that's where we have to up against the meter stick of God's word and God's mind and God's thoughts. So there is this, there's this dynamic and a tension that we have to manage uh, between what is a conscious, 
What's the conscience that is truly from God and what of it, part of it has been fed, corrupted, and even seared in the sense that, oh no, it's fine, I can do this, I'm not bothered by this. Think, the Apostle Paul said in Corinthians, this verse just came to my mind, he said, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. What a profound statement. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. He says, all I'm telling you is as far as my conscience is concerned, I think I'm okay. But my conscience, may, I may have a blind spot there. So the conscience is not ultimately foolproof. And so it's just that journey that we have to have of, of, of scripture and mentors and people in our lives coming alongside. And then you just make the best decision you can. Great question. You were still right. Oh, there's an Amish guy. That's your grandfather? <laughs> As long as that wasn't your grandmother, because that's a big beard right there. <laughs> right here. Uh, a person who has never been reached by the gospel, maybe by way of geographic location, mm -hmm. but has been living morally by way of nature and conscience. Ooh, yes. When a person dies, is he saved? What a great question. I was hoping I wouldn't get it. Um, <laughs> the question was, well, a person who's never been reached by the gospel, geographically they live where they've never heard the gospel, but they've sought to live a moral life, can they be saved? Are they saved? Um, Theoretically, if I understand Romans, there's, a, there's an offer that's been made in Romans. Um, and here's where we, we just have to look and ultimately I have to say, I, you, no one is saved other than through Jesus Christ. Let's lay that foundation. Okay, that's a given. But how, so it's only through the merits of Jesus that we're saved, the work of Jesus. But how that's applied to someone's life is, is that, could that be different? For example, oh, let me try to find the passage where, um, where there's a, I'm trying to find it, uh, where God says that anyone, there's an offer made uh, Oh boy, I should have should have underlined it or put it aside. Pardon me. Absolutely, but so but the question is theoretically, and I, I'll have the passage for you next time we get together, because Paul talks about in Romans that there seems to be a genuine offer made if someone by diligence seeks to live for God that there's this genuine offer that's out there. Now, nobody, Paul clearly says, can live according to the law. But theoretically, I heard it described this way. Theoretically, if there's such a person who um, 400, 500 years ago, uh, one of my ancestors, I'm one quarter Aboriginal, so one of my ancestors lived on the Great Plains, okay, and native, and uh, he looks up and he sees this creation all around him and his conscience. And he looks up and he believes that there's a great spirit out there. There must be a, a spirit, God, who made all this. And he knows, my ancestor, that he has not lived according to that spirit's um, wishes. He doesn't follow some... Now, so I'm not syncretistic here in the sense that... I'm not, he doesn't follow some native spirituality. He just says... I know I have not lived according to your design. I fall upon your mercy. Is it conceivable that that person 
because they didn't trust in any man-made religion, that that person just falls upon, and they're not judged by what they don't know. They're judged by what they do know. Is it conceivable that the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ is applied to them? I could see that. Do I think that's possible or anyone's actually done that? No. But is it logically conceivable? Yes. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. Yes, Walter. Billy Graham tends to agree along those lines. Billy Graham agrees with me? Good. <laughs> <laughs> only, only God knows his own. Yes. And, uh, you know, we really can't judge those things. We can't. We taught on that to the parable of the uh, wheat and the tares a few weeks ago here at Broadway where we said, ultimately, we don't know someone's heart. But the question was the legitimate one. Is it conceivable that? Is there a scenario? That would be the only scenario I could envision where a person could be saved without knowing uh, because they've not rejected the gospel. They've never heard. That might be. I know it's Romans. Um, Romans 2.16. Uh, no. Thanks for trying to help, though. Uh, this, I'm just wondering if it can be likened to that scenario where um, the Ethiopian general was sitting there and the Ethiopian eunuch. Yep. Yes. I agree, and I often, that's a very insightful observation. I often point to the Ethiopian eunuch when uh, people ask about what, people, what about folks who've never heard, and I've always been of the belief and understanding that God knows our hearts, he knows our desires, and he knows what it would take for us to be saved, and if there's someone who sincerely wants to know, God will make a way for that person. And the Ethiopian eunuch in, the gospel, in, in Acts is a great example where he's re reading Isaiah in his chariot, God sends, is it James? Peter, no, it's not Peter, Philip. God sends Philip uh, and to, to walk alongside Philip. Why? Philip's in the middle of a revival or whatever. Why should I go down towards Jericho? Just go. So he goes and he sees this chariot. He walks up. He hears the guy reading from Isaiah 53. And he says, you know, do you know what you're reading about? And the Ethiopian says, how would I know unless someone tells me? I'll tell you. And the guy, expl and Philip explains who, what Isaiah 53 is about. It's about the suffering servant, the Messiah. The guy, he tells him about Jesus. The guy then gets baptized. And then Philip is supernaturally whisked away from that moment and ends up in another uh, Miletus or something, in another city. Wow, supernatural story. But as I read that, it tells me God will do whatever it takes. Having said that, is it, can I think of a logically conceivable scenario? And that's the, I, I did my best to answer that. Great question. Any over here? Yes. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, I, yeah, I, I know that uh, we we are, we can only be judged for what we know. Or what, not what we don't know. That's the principle of justice that that we that we have. Was there was there another question back there? Oh, sorry, Bob, and then you, my friend. I don't. You're saying we have no free will because unless our will aligns with God's will. 
our disaster is imminent. I would agree that unless our will aligns with God's will, disaster is imminent. Yes, that's true. Because sin is a rejection of God's will. But I don't see how it is my choice whether or not to align my will to God's will. So I do have free will. I can choose to accept his will or reject it. If I reject it, I'm doomed. If I accept it, I'm, I'm good. So I don't see how that fact means I don't have a free will. It's just like I can stand on top of the roof of Broadway and I can obey the law of gravity or I can disobey it. I have a free will either way, but if I disobey it, I'm dead. But I have a free will. Yes? Uh, there's no doubt absolutely about, uh, about uh, Christian morality, no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. But uh, the definition and philosophy of ethics is that it varies between time and space, mm -hmm. between geographical locations yeah, there, there's, he's saying that in, in the Christian realm we have a general understanding of ethics, but in our world we have this, people say time, space, geography, it varies, and that's you know, the whole idea of relativism, um, and situation ethics and so on. Um, but that ultimately implodes on itself, um, and uh, it's, though that's very popular in our society, but uh, like, I was in a meeting just this past week, a professional, I was part of a group, uh, wasn't a Christian context at all, it was in, uh, in Surrey, and, I was, and this professional uh, was, was teaching this class I was part of, and they said, one of the strengths of this therapy, this teaching, is that you need to accept that there are no absolute truths. And I said, is that absolutely true? <laughs> and he said, oh. I see what you're saying there. He said, well, this is the only one that's true. <laughs> Come on. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's self-defeating. When you say there are no absolutes, you say, was that absolutely true? Yes. Well, then it's false. If it's true, it's false. One last question. Oh, you've asked one. Anyone who hasn't asked one yet? Okay. Is it okay for the church to go against the will of God? Yeah, like standards have been laid down. Oh, I see. So you're talking, are we talking about the same-sex issue in churches? Okay, let's come out and say it. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're in a safe place here. Um, this is the great debate, and I'm... This, I think, in my mind, this is the canary in the mine, as they say, uh, for the church in the, in the end times. Uh, I... I understand people disagreeing about things where this scripture can look fuzzy and gray. There's some areas where I, I understand that fuzziness. And godly people can disagree on some things. In all sincerity, I don't see how you can disagree on this area. Let's talk about same-sex marriage. Let's say the definition of marriage. I don't see any wiggle room at all other than when it comes to is marriage other than a man and a woman. Um, there's just no wiggle room in scripture. And, and these, these scholars, whatever, that they'll quote, they're just, for thousands of years, scholarship has been solid. This has never even been a question. And I don't know of any scholar who doesn't have an, an ax to grind or a horse in the race who, 
who or saw reason to disagree with 3,000, 5,000 years of tradition and scholarship. I don't know any scholar who says, oh yes, this is wide open. I don't know anyone objectively who holds to that position. It's settled. And to, so to reject that, I think, is to, as we quoted earlier, as Paul said, to suppress the truth. Great questions. And we haven't even talked about the Bible yet. And this is a teaching on the Bible. So next time we get together, uh, we're going to be talking about special revelation and what that includes and involves. Thanks for being here, folks. God bless you.